Area 10 Faith Community meets in the historic Bird Theater in Carytown in Richmond, Virginia. We worship together at 10 a.m. on Sunday mornings, both in person and online at youtube.com slash area10church. Kid-friendly programming is also available at the same time just down the street at 2810 at Community Gathering Place. We hope to see you at the Bird Theater soon. Now, on to this week's message. Hey, hey, good to see you. I'm glad you are with us to worship today, and uh, you came out to start out your year this way. Um, we have a special guest today, and I'm really excited about this. Um, Tim Cole is here to share a message with us, and uh, Tim and I go way back. So uh, Tim hired me to work. Um, <clears throat> Tim hired me to work at a church in Virginia Beach, which is actually what moved my family to Virginia back in the year 2000. Uh, we were hired by Tim to work at Forefront Church in Virginia Beach. We were there for five years, and then Tim said, will you come up to Richmond and help us start a church? So we moved up to Richmond to help Tim and his family start a church in Short Pump at Velocity Church in 2005-2006. And then uh, after that, Tim uh, was leading a church planting organization called Waypoint, it wasn't called Waypoint at the time, but it is called Waypoint now. And Waypoint is a church planting organization that plants churches all throughout the Mid-Atlantic. And they uh, started Area 10 to, as an organization. They said, hey, we want to plant a church in the city of Richmond. They hired me to do it. So really, um, I haven't had a job since the year 2000 that I didn't get from Tim Cole, which is kind of which is kind of wild, but it's true. And so uh, he's obviously an important person in my life, um, but just a really good dude and, and has a really uh, a big heart for new churches being started. And so um, as a church, Area 10, when you give to our church, we give money back to support uh, Waypoint to plant other churches around the Mid-Atlantic. So sometimes people move away and they're like, hey, I'm moving to Frederick, Maryland. Do you know a church up there? And I'm like, actually, Waypoint helped start a church up there. Yes, I know a church up there. So we'll, we'll usually have some sort of connection like that. So um, I'm excited to hear from him today it's, as he's going to talk to us about um, a, a bit about church planting, but about disciple making as well, which is really something that's important to us as a church. So um, would you please give a warm welcome to my friend, Tim Cole. Well, good morning, Area 10. It is good to be here. And Waypoint did help start this church 13 years ago as an organization. So uh, congratulations on 13 good years. And, uh, and I personally helped start this church. I remember, I was remembered on my drive down here. My family now lives up in the Blue Ridge Mountains, so I got a beautiful drive down this morning. Uh, but was thinking about um, 13, well, 12 years ago, how long ago would that be? 14 years ago, uh, when uh, the church was pre-launch, uh, passing out uh, flyers and bags to collect uh, food for the, the local food bank here and kind of announcing that the new church was getting started. And uh, my son, who is now taller than I am, was like 15 months old at the time. And so I pushed a stroller all around this part of Carytown here and went up and down stoops on a Sunday night and a Monday night, hundreds and hundreds of houses up a stoop, down a stoop, up a stoop, down a stoop. And then on Tuesday morning, I could not walk. It's like, it was like a, uh, a workout that I was not prepared for. And so then the church launched, and we're so proud of the church that this has become. And, uh, and you all help, start, uh, help us start churches all over the region. Uh, and since you all launched, you need to know that you've helped Waypoint to start uh, more than 30 new churches around the Mid-Atlantic region. And that's something to be proud of. 
And so just in the last four years, you've helped us plant churches in Maryland and Washington, D.C. and Virginia and North Carolina, and even our first church plant ever in South Carolina. So we're really glad that you're helping us to do that. We planted two churches this last year during COVID, one in Bristol, Virginia, and one in Goldsboro, North Carolina. And so we're really happy about that. But one thing that we're really proud of is not that we're starting new churches, but that we really try and hire uh, church planters who have a passion for reaching new people for Christ. Uh, because uh, it's not for us just about uh, shifting the saints or shuffling the sheep, if you know what I mean, but it's about churches that are going to reach out and reach new people for Christ. And so one of the obvious metrics that we have for that is the number of baptisms we get to celebrate through all of our new churches every year. And uh, we did some calculations, and in the last 30 years, the church plants that are on the map that you've seen there uh, have celebrated more than 8,000 baptisms. And so, but here's the kicker. Of the 8,000 baptisms in the last 30 years, 1,000 of them have been in the last two years alone. And so our new churches, like, and all, including all the hundreds of, church, of baptisms here at this church, our new churches are reaching new people for Christ. And so you should be proud to be a part of a church that's not just about this building and this church, but it's about the kingdom and expanding uh, God's, uh, God's kingdom here on earth. And so thanks for being a part of that. And uh, so I'd like to talk a little bit about uh, church planting uh, this, uh, this morning, uh, and, but it has a really important personal application at the end. So you're going to hang with me for the first two-thirds, and then we're going to switch gears and talk about what this means for you personally, for everyone seated in this room today, or if you are viewing online, there's a specific personal application for you uh, that I want to get to today. And so I want to talk about church planting, and, and whenever I get to talk about church planting, uh, which is a lot because it's what I do, and I get to teach in some of our seminaries and other places like that. Uh, I, um, I like to talk about the compelling statistics that show the urgency we should have for church planting. And, uh, and I love statistics. I don't know if you do. Actually, before I became a pastor, uh, I was a high school math teacher 30 plus years ago. And uh, I, there's at least one other math lover back in the room somewhere. If you love math, say woo-hoo. Yeah, that's what it usually like. We're, we're kind of, there's, there's support groups for people like us. I used to teach trigonometry, pre-calculus, stuff like that. And for most people, they believe that church on Sunday should be a math-free zone. So we're, we're not going to do a lot of statistics. I just want to tell you one statistic that I think uh, very clearly shows the urgency that we should have for, for church planting. Because I think uh, when we talk about church planting, most people uh, pretty quickly think of a very a legit question. And that question is, new churches, don't we have enough, new church, uh, enough churches in America already? And I think that's a fair question. In America, there's more than 350,000 churches. Seems like there's almost one on every block. Don't we have enough churches already? And I think that's a legit question. And so this statistic goes this way. 30 years from now, in the year 2052, does that sound really odd to you? 30 years from now, half the people attending a church in America are going to be attending a church that's less than 30 years old. Does that make any sense? I want to say it another way, but 30 years from now, half the people, if this generation follows suit, like the last two or three generations, 30 years from now, and so another way to say that is today in America, 2022, as of yesterday, half the people attending a church in America this year are going to be attending a church that's less than 30 years old. Half are going to be attending a church that's more than 30 years old, half are less than 30 years old. Does that make any sense? That's the median line of age of a church for attendance in America. Usually within a year or two, you can, you can calculate that. So here's what this means. 30 years from now, 
if this generation follows suit, half the people attending a church in America are going to be sitting in a church that we have not yet started. Think about that. 30 years from now, if this generation follows suit, half the people attending a church are going to be in a church that doesn't exist yet. And so that's my one statistic. I think it's a pretty good one, but I'm going to stop right there because most of you don't want to do any more math than that on Sunday. And so I want to talk about a biblical reason why church planting is so important that has a personal application for every one of us here today. And so we're going to go into the Bible to do that. And if you've been around church for any length of time, you would think that I would uh, go to a New Testament passage, one of two places most likely, either the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28 or the day of Pentecost, the day of the first church in Acts chapter 2, where the church started and then a new one was started in every town uh, after that. I'm not going to go to either of those places to talk about why I believe church planting is so important. Actually, I don't even want to be in the, in the New Testament at all. I want to go to a passage in the Old Testament. And of all places in the Old Testament, I want to go to the very first page of the New Testament, to Genesis chapter 1, that interestingly, strangely, I believe gives us the reason why we should be planting more and more churches all the time. Before we do that, though, there's an important principle you have to understand, and it's a principle from the study of hermeneutics, the study of hermeneutics. And hermeneutics is a, is a churchy word. It's actually a course that you will take in seminary. And hermeneutics is a course where you learn the appropriate, official, well-respected, time-tested principles and rules for interpreting and teaching Scripture. That there are rules in play that you should and shouldn't do for how you interpret and teach Scripture. That's kind of an important course that you would take in seminary, isn't it? And uh, I think we could look back at the transcripts for Chris Barris and at Cincinnati Bible College and seminary, where I also graduated, and see how he did in hermeneutics class to see you would want him to do fairly well in that course of all. And you've probably heard preachers uh, online or, uh, or on TV or wherever, and, and they say something, and you think to yourself, where did they come up with that baloney, you know? And it's probably because they got a D in hermeneutics is, is why. And so uh, it's a very important course. And in the hermeneutics, you learn all these principles about interpreting scriptures. And one of the principles that you're going to learn is the principle of emphasis, the principle of emphasis. And the reason you have to learn this is because, believe it or not, in the Bible, uh, the two Bible languages, and the Old Testament was written primarily in in uh, Hebrew, and the New Testament, Testament was written primarily in Greek, both of those biblical languages basically have no punctuation. There's, there's almost no punctuation in the Bible languages. And so can you imagine what it would be like to be a Bible writer and have no ability to use any kind of punctuation to emphasize anything important? In modern days, you know, we would hit control B and make it bold or control U and underline it, or we'd use an exclamation point or a highlighter and make it yellow. We would do something to highlight the important things. But in the Bible languages, there's not, there, we don't have those options. And so what you learn in hermeneutics in this one particular topic is that in the Bible languages, emphasis was primarily accomplished through the use of strategic repetition. That a word or a phrase strategically repeated one after another clues off the reader that something very important is about to be said, so pay attention. Now, we would understand what this looks like even in modern times. Uh, here we are, gone through the holidays. I don't know if you traveled during Thanksgiving or Christmas to family members somewhere else in the area, but you get your whole family in the family wagon and you head out. And, uh, and after, it doesn't even take an hour, but after a little while, you hear this voice coming over the, from the back seat where one of the kids will say what? Daddy, 
I really got to go, right? And being any warm-blooded American dad, do, do you stop immediately? No way, right? You're going to stretch this out. You're going to go another 15, 20, 30 minutes. But after a little while, maybe 20 minutes later, the same little voice comes back, comes from over the seat and says, Daddy, I really, really got to go. And by that use of strategic repetition, you understand that the next statement is going to be in liquid form, right? right? And so we understand how this works. And in the Bible, we see this used over and over and over again. One of the most interesting ones, most common ones, is this odd word or phrase that Jesus used to tip off his hearers that he was going to say something important. And it's a phrase that we don't use in modern times. And uh, in the, the King James version of the Bible that I grew up with, it was the word verily, verily. And in modern uh, translations that you might have, it's truly, truly. And before Jesus would say something important, he would say, truly, truly, I say to you. And uh, it's just kind of an odd thing to say. It's, we don't use that kind of phrase anymore. More than 60 times in the gospel accounts do we see Jesus using this phrase, truly, truly, I say to you. The very first time he used that was in the gospel account of John chapter 3 when Jesus is meeting secretly at night with this dude named Nicodemus. And Nicodemus was a Pharisee. And so all the Pharisees didn't like Jesus. They kind of hated Jesus because he was teaching a different kind of religion than they were getting to teach. And, uh, and so they didn't like him. And so Nicodemus had to sneak at night to, to listen to Jesus. So they would meet at night. And one, very early on, we have the Bible recording for us, Jesus saying to Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a person is born again, they can't see the kingdom of heaven. That's kind of important, isn't it? That uh, you've heard the phrase born again Christian, which is kind of redundant. Uh, but Jesus, Jesus is the one who coined the phrase to be born again. And he says, unless you're born again, you can't get to heaven. That's kind of important. And so Jesus is figuratively grabbing Nicodemus by the shoulders, probably not literally grabbing him, but figuratively and saying, listen, I'm going to tell you something really important, so pay attention. Another example, there's lots of them throughout Scripture, but probably one of my favorite ones uh, comes in uh, the story of the, the account where Jesus uh, meets uh, with his friends, Mary and Martha and Lazarus at this point, their brother. He, he kind of surprises them for dinner with his 12 uh, disciples. And, uh, and so uh, if you could, can you imagine what it would be like to try and um, to cook up dinner for 12? Because uh, we understand that Bible writers uh, or Bible scholars would say that most of the disciples were probably older teenagers or young adults, like college age. So can, do you know how much college age guys eat? You know, my, my uh, daughter, Vika, uh, got married uh, a few years ago, and the year before she got married, her fiancé, Garrett, uh, lived nearby, and so he was at our house three, four, five, six nights a week. Uh, and so we were so happy when they got married. Because our grocery bill, no lie, went down $500 a month. And so that was one college-age guy. Can you imagine what it's like to have 12 college-age guys show up for dinner? And so Mary and Martha are back in the kitchen, cooking up a storm, trying to figure out how they're going to feed all these guys. And Martha, the older sister, looks around after a few minutes, and Mary, her younger sister, has ditched her. And she has gone out into the living room with all the other guys. And Martha is honked off, all right? She is mad. And I don't, I don't know why I imagine this, but I imagine one of those floppy kitchen doors, you know what I'm talking about? And so she comes and she pushes her way through that floppy kitchen doors and makes that little, little, little sound. And she goes into the living room and she grabs Jesus, pulls him over in the corner and says, Jesus, would you make Mary come back in the kitchen and help me finish cooking supper? 
And if you know the Bible account, you know what Jesus said to her. He said, Martha, Martha. And he repeats her name. And that's not just an accident. He, through the use of strategic repetition, he's telling her, I'm going to tell you something really important. And he says, Martha, Martha, you're, you're worried about so many things, but she's worried about the right thing because I'm the one who has the words of eternal life. And so there's all these times in scripture that we see the use of strategic repetition used for emphasizing something. And it's with that uh, hermeneutical principle in mind that I wanna go all the way to Genesis chapter one and notice a word or a phrase that's repeated, not just once or twice or three times, but a word or a phrase that's repeated seven times in the space of 10 verses. And as a result of that, I think God's got something very important to teach us as a principle Uh, believe it or not, about church planting, among other things. And so if you've got your Bible app with you, I want to invite you to to open up to uh, Genesis chapter 1. Or if you've got old school Bible, you can do that as well. Before we jump into that, so I want to talk about the the account of creation, the seven days, six days of creation. And uh, and we're going to, I've got a picture of uh, the the account of creation here. And I want to talk about... um, some, script, some scriptures from the day three, five, and six. Those are the days that the kind of the living things were created. Days one, two, and four were more inanimate objects, but days three, five, and six were the living things. But before we do that, I, as a little aside, if you got to grow up in church like I did, um, I was always taught when you, when you learned about the account of creation, whether it was in Sunday school or vacation Bible school, I was always taught that at the end of every day God would, of creation, God would step back and kind of survey everything that he, would, he made that day, and he would look around and he would say, behold, that is good. And that good, that, that, that's a Hebrew word, tov, T-O-V. It's a strong word. It's good. It's perfect. It's right. It's exactly what I wanted. And so I learned growing up that at the end of every day, God stepped back, look at what he had created that day and said, behold, that is tov, that is perfect. That's exactly what I wanted to make today. Well, believe it or not, it's not in there for every day. It's, it's not in, and you can go if you want to right now, if I'm getting boring, you can go and read the account of creation. And at the end of, it's not at the end of every day, it's not at the end of the second day of creation. And so if you understand the kind of the timing, the first day would be Sunday, second day, Mondays, third day, Tuesday, and so on. And so do you understand what this means that the second day of creation, God did not say, behold, it is good. There's a theological lesson here. God hates Mondays too. That's what, it, that's what it means. He did not say it on Monday. And so tomorrow when you get up and have to go to work on January 3rd and you say, I don't want to go to work, God says, I know. And so um, that's just an aside. I'll go ahead and read it when I get a little dry. So, um, so I want to look at days three, five, and six. And you, you should see if there's a word or a phrase that's repeated uh, that will clue us off to something. In the first day, it, you might not catch it, but by the second day and the third day, you will. So uh, the first one is day three, which is verse 11 in your scripture. The Bible records, Then God said, Let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants, and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Do you see a word or phrase repeated there? It's not so obvious. So let's move down. Day five is verse 21. Maybe you'll catch it here. 
In day five, God created the great creatures of the sea and every living thing with which the water teems and moves about in it according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. All right, you're starting to catch on now, aren't you? Let's go to day six. Verse 25, the Bible records, so God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds, and God saw that it was good. So you can see this odd word or phrase, can't you? It's this, this phrase, according to their kind or after their kind. And it's repeated in there so many times, it's kind of awkward, isn't it? It's like, okay, God, I'm getting it. You created things according to their kinds. And so this is a, a strategic uh, restriction that God placed on creation, at creation, uh, for what he, he made. And, and so the, the word or phrase, according to their kind, is actually just one word in Hebrew. It's the, the Hebrew word lemino, the word lemino. And it means by the strategic design of God, every living thing reproduces itself after its kind. It's a rest- restriction God put on creation. And so you think to yourself, well, that's kind of interesting. Until you think for about 15 seconds and then you think, well, no, duh, all right? Because that's the way life has always been, that things reproduce themselves, big deal. Well, could you imagine for a second if God had not placed this restriction on creation, that lemino was not in play uh, in our world today? It would make for a bizarro world, wouldn't it? For example, your, dog has, your family has a pet dog and she gets pregnant and it's obvious that it's about time for her to give birth to her litter. And so you, your family sets up some kind of nice little comfortable place out on the back deck one night and you all go to bed. And the next morning you get up and you look out there and sure enough, out in that little bed is a whole litter of chickens. And, uh, and that's not, that's not going to happen, is it? That would be awesome if it would happen. It's not going to happen. You want to know why that's not going to happen? Lamino. That's right. Why? Right? Because by the creative design of God, every living thing has to reproduce itself after its kind. That's the way, that's the, way the world works. Or uh, here this spring, uh, we live out in the country now, and we uh, plant a big garden. This last year, we had a bunch of pumpkins along the back of our, our garden. And pumpkins, if you've ever planted those, will just kind of take over these big vines with big giant leaves. And pumpkins have the coolest blooms blossoms that come up where the pumpkins are going to end up eventually. They're these big yellow flowers that are beautiful. And so can you imagine having a whole hedgerow at the back of your garden with all these pumpkin plants, and there's all these yellow blooms back there, and you go to bed one night, and then you wake up the next morning, you look out your back window, and where every one of those yellow blooms was now is a beaver. And it's like, well, that's not going to happen, is it? That would be awesome if it would happen, but it's not going to happen. Why is it not going to happen? Lamino, right? Because by the creative design of God, every living thing has to reproduce itself after its kind. That's the way it works. Another probably most personal example for me is when a woman gives birth, uh, and I happen to be president at the birth of my three kids. And so a a woman goes into labor, and after however many hours of difficult labor and pushing and all that, and the guy's rooting on on the sideline, out pops, and can you imagine if after all these hours, out pops a bouncing baby lizard. And uh, and, uh, so now you have to admit, most moms in the room are going to be thinking, oh, that's horrible. And most guys in the room are thinking, that's about right. Because for the first two or three hours, they kind of look like lizards, don't they? But they're not lizards, are they? They're humans. Why? 
Lamento, right? Because by the creative design of God, every living thing reproduces itself after its kind. That's the way the world works. And so many of you in this room already are thinking, what in the world is his point? I've got a point, all right? So uh, here's my point. And it has to do with church planting. The church is a living thing, isn't it? The church is a living organism. Over and over again throughout scripture, the Bible ascribes to the church anthropomorphic qualities, human-like qualities. The Bible records that the church can be born, it can die, it can grieve, it can lose its first love, it can be rich or poor, it can persevere. Actually, in English, the two most common words for the church happen to start with the letter B in English. Do you know what those two words are? That the church is often described as the body of Christ or the bride of Christ. The church is a living thing. So here's my question. Should Lamino be in play for the church? Well, of course it should. By the creative design of God, every living thing reproduces itself after its kind. And so I believe that churches should make churches. That, that's the way it, it should work because that, and this should be no surprise to us that that's the way it should work because that's the restriction that God put on every living thing from the first page of scripture. Churches make churches. And uh, this should be no uh, surprise to us because uh, every living thing, uh, well, let me say this. I think most of us get this backwards, including myself growing up in the church, uh, that I believe churches should make churches, and I didn't understand that, but I also believe that churches shouldn't make disciples, believe it or not. I think, I think churches should make churches, but something else should make disciples. And it's, if we were to go to the New Testament, to that passage in Matthew chapter 28, which is so famous of a scripture that they gave it a title, it's called the Great Commission. And so this one passage has, has a, a title, the Great Commission. It's when Jesus is just about to ascend back up into heaven and he's gathered his 12 uh, uh, followers around him that he's gonna hand the church off to and he gives them their commission, their mission, their marching orders. And uh, it's a very famous passage where Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always to the very end of the age. That's called the Great Commission. But he says, go and make disciples. And so as a result of that, almost all churches say that their church's job is to make disciples. And I don't think that's exactly right, believe it or not. Here's what I mean. If, when, I was, when you were coming in this morning, uh, it, we could have had some people stationed at the back with little clipboards and asked everyone that came in a very simple question. Or we could have had a little Google uh, survey on your phone that we distributed to everybody and asked you, what do you think is the fruit of a church? What's the product of a church? What should it be? And I think just about everybody in this room would have said something along the lines of, well, the product of a church or the fruit of a church is disciples or new Christians or something along that line. Wouldn't, wouldn't you think that? And I think that's right, kind of. Another way to look at it would be uh, every year, my family has a, um, has a tradition of going to Carter Mountain up in near Charlottesville. Do you, have, have you ever been to Charlotte Mountain in the fall? We go every year. I've got a picture here of my young son. He's now taller than I am, but every year he uh, illegally climbs in the trees and, and uh, shakes them. And there's, if you've ever been there, there's just... Uh, apples by the bushel load uh, uh, of there. And if I were to ask you a very simple question this morning, what do you believe is the fruit 
of an apple tree. What's the fruit of an apple tree? That's pretty easy, isn't it? I think just about everybody in the room would say apples. And I think that's right. Kind of. What if I were to say that the fruit of an apple tree isn't apples, but the fruit of an apple tree is more apple trees? And that the apples are just the packages of seeds by which the new trees get planted. Does that make sense? Sometimes the, the apple with the seeds in it falls to the ground and the, the daughter apple tree rises up very near the, the mother apple tree. Sometimes it's on a mountain like at Carter Mountain in Charlottesville. And so the apple runs way down the hill and the, the daughter tree is a long way from the mother. But either way, the fruit of that tree is another tree and the apple is just the package of seeds by which the baby tree gets planted. In the same way, if I were to ask you, what's the fruit of a church? Most of us would say, oh, disciples or new, or new Christians or something along the line. I'd go, mm, maybe. Churches make churches, but the fruit of a church isn't disciples. The fruit of a church is more churches, and the, the disciples are just the packages of seeds by which the new churches get started. And so I believe churches make churches, and I believe disciples are the ones who should make disciples. That's the way it works. This should be no surprise to us, actually, uh, when we look at that that passage of Scripture uh, in Matthew chapter 28, where Jesus said, go and make disciples. Do you you ever think about to whom Jesus was speaking when he gave the Great Commission? It's got that that name attached to it. Well, we know exactly to whom he was speaking if you just back up three verses. And the Bible tells us to, to whom Jesus was speaking when he gave the Great Commission. The Bible records for us there in Matthew 28, verse 16, then the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And then he gave them this this mission. And so Jesus told his disciples to make disciples. That's lamino, isn't it? He told his disciples to make disciples. And that should be no surprise to us, really, because Jesus is the one who invented lamino in the first place. Most of us don't think of this because we think of Jesus as a New Testament guy. But the Bible teaches that Jesus was actually present at creation. The God that let us make man in our own image. And actually, the Apostle, or the Apostle Paul teaches in, in the book of Colossians that Jesus was not only present at creation, but that all things were created by him and for him, and through him all things hold together. Jesus was the one who invented Lamino in the first place. And so Jesus said, disciples make disciples. And I thought, I I think I got that all wrong when I was growing up in the church because I thought it was the church's job to make disciples. And it was my job just to invite my friend to church and I had done my job because it was the church's job to make disciples. And I did not understand this very important principle of scripture of Lamino. And uh, so, uh, so uh, here, this is the kind of the flip side of the pancake where it gets very personal for every one of us is that disciples are the ones who make disciples. And, and, I, and whenever a preacher starts talking about that, I've sat where you sat, I'm thinking, what in the world does that look like? Uh, that's kind of, it seems kind of intimidating or scary or, or ambiguous. What's it mean uh, to, for disciples to make disciples? Well, let me, I, what I'd like to do with you right now is do a little physical exercise that I hope will help you remember and think about what what discipleship is. If you would take out your hands right now and hold them up just like this and hold them with your thumbs under here and just go like this for for a second. If you're doing this online, no one's going to see you. You can do it and you won't be nearly as awkward looking as the rest of us. Just do your hands. And what what does that signify? 
This is a physical exercise of rubbing shoulders, two people rubbing shoulders next to each other. And that's what I believe discipleship is. It's a person uh, intentionally, strategically rubbing shoulders with another person in such a way that their faith is passed along to that person. Does that make sense? It's not some big theological thing that you gotta go to seminary for. Discipleship looks like this. Discipleship is you living your life in such a way, strategically and intentionally, in such a way that the way you live your life of faith gets passed along to another person. That's discipleship. And Jesus said, disciples make disciples. And so this looks, what this looks like in real life is that there's someone in your life that gets to see firsthand what it looks like for you to struggle to figure out how to make a 2,000-year-old book relevant to your life today. They get to see how you do that. Or they get to see how you struggle to have a marriage that honors God in spite of the fact that there are two very imperfect people living in the same house together. And they get to see physically how you do that in such a way that honors God. Or they get to see very personally and physically how you organize your finances in a way that, have, that demonstrates kingdom values. Or they get to see how you parent your children in such a way that they get to know and love Jesus Christ. They, they get to see what that looks like, how you have priorities in your life that honor God. And you are strategic and intentional about that in such a way that they see if, if my friend can do that, I can do it too. That's discipleship. And Jesus said, disciples make disciples. So here's my question today, kind of wrap up. If you are in this room today, or you are watching online this morning, and you are a follower of Christ, is Lamino in play for you? Well, I believe it is. That, that there is someone in your life that you need to be replicating yourself into. And my, so my question is, who's, who is it? Who is that person that you're strategically, intentionally sharing your faith in such a way that they catch, oh, that's what it looks like. It's gotta be somebody. If you're living and breathing in this room and you're a follower of Jesus, Lamento applies to you. So who is it? It might be a coworker that you have the luxury of uh, sitting next to five days a week for multiple hours at a time. It might be a friend that you've had for a long time or one that you've made recently. It might be a neighbor uh, that lives across the street or next door to you. Uh, it might be uh, someone else in your life uh, that, uh, that, you, that you know. But there's gotta be somebody in your life that you're strategically, intentionally rubbing shoulders with so that they catch on, oh, that's what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus Christ, a disciple of Jesus Christ. And so what I wanna to do today to close is to say a word of prayer. And while I'm praying, this may feel a little awkward, but I would like you to put your hands together and rub them like this as I'm praying. And, at the, and you would be asking the Holy Spirit to show you who's that other person in your life. Is it a family member? They're hard to reach sometimes, the hardest. Or a friend, coworker, someone at school, who is it? But as I'm praying, I'm hoping the Holy Spirit will be convicting you of that person in your life that you will replicate your faith into this year. So rub your hands together and I'll pray. Heavenly Father, as we pray to close this message today, I'm praying that your Holy Spirit would do his work of convicting us of a person. That right now as our eyes are closed, we can see their face. We know who they are. It's a coworker that we rub shoulders with. 
It's a neighbor that we see. It's a family member that we've been praying for for years. It's somebody in our lives that we want to strategically, intentionally rub shoulders with in such a way that they get to see what it looks like to live a life of faith, and then we get to walk alongside them as they do. So I'm praying that your Holy Spirit would be convicting us right now for who that person is. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.